Hello and welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton, the Inflation Guy. I am your host. And today we're going to uh, I'm going to I'm going to encourage you to think differently and more deeply about price and quantity. Uh, at one level, supply and demand curves that we all learned in Econ 101 um, are very easy. It's very easy to understand the, the basics of what we're trying to explain with those curves. But they're actually kind of deceptively easy. And, and because they are so easy, they lead to misunderstandings about how everything actually works. Uh, and And... I'll say those misunderstandings go far beyond Econ 101. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, but first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify is a new ETF provider offering alternative investment strategies with full transparency, daily liquidity, and low costs. Some of their hedge fund style strategies include managed futures, commodity trend following, steepener trades, and more. If you're an individual investor or an RIA, you will likely find a compelling alternative investment from Simplify that can help improve your portfolio. Check check out their website, simplify.us. That's simplify.us. And their entire lineup of ETFs is available at simplify.us slash ETFs. And the the trivia question for today, I think this is kind of easy, but... Probably be easy for some people and a little harder for other people. It's a musical question. According to Alabama, what do you need in the band if you're going to play in Texas? Okay. We like to kind of mix up the trivia questions. So some of them are more difficult, some are easier, and and uh, hopefully we'll eventually hit everybody's specialty. And, and so you'll you'll get one that's easy at some point if you listen long enough. So. Price and quantity. You know, it, it's interesting, um, I think, how people think about economics. And one of the things I've always loved about economics is that it's, you know, the basic structures um, of, you know, the you know, marginal utility and supply and demand and, and uh, you know, the way you quantify trade-offs um, are really broadly applicable far beyond just uh, – just simple economics. Um, it's sort of like options theory, right? So at one time when I was in college, I thought of, I thought you could, you could maybe model how a, um, a uh, motorcycle cop thinks about pulling over a speeder um, in terms of the supply and demand of speeders. Um, and, um, and then as I got a little older and became an options trader, I realized that no, it's really more of an options question and and how does the motorcycle cop decide when to exercise the option when is it deep enough in the money to actually early exercise that option but anyway i digress the point is that we have very very simple simple structures that lead to really complex behavior and complex understandings um and and so i think it's interesting how people internalize these economic concepts and there's kind of a couple of different levels at the first level are the people who just don't know anything about economics. And yet they're still economic actors, right? And so it's super interesting to see that even people who have never studied economics understand scarcity. They know that there's less of something. That means it should be, it should have a high cost. It should, it should cost more than something that there's that's plentiful. 
it's not only intuitive, I actually, I'd argue it's probably evolutionary, evolutionarily essential because the caveman who doesn't value that which takes a lot of resource, resources to obtain eventually runs out of resources, right? So, so that level of economics and the understanding of scarcity is, is fundamental. It's baked in and, uh, and we operate on those things. And that's one of the appeals of, of economics and economic theory. And in fact, my, my, I've always sort of had this, this feeling that if you teach me an economic concept and it just intuitively doesn't seem right, then there's probably some reason to think it, it isn't right. Because a lot of what we're trying to uh, explain with economics is, is how actors actually uh, behave in the economic system, in the price system. And so we should have an intuition about a lot of these things. So anyway, so the, the, the first level here are people who don't know anything about economics and merely are economic actors. And it's fascinating to look and see how, how they behave. It doesn't mean that they necessarily behave and make the, you know, rationally and make the right, the objectively correct decision. You know, behaviorally, there are a lot of pressures operating on you, uh, the consumer, many of which are thoughtfully and artificially provided by advertisers seeking to push your buttons to make you behave in certain ways. Um, and, and that doesn't go away, by the way, with economic experience. You know, knowing that, that, uh, you're, that these forces are operating on you doesn't necessarily change the way that you react to them. Um, as an aside, sort of a funny story, um, and I mentioned before that way back in the day, I, I, I went around with, with Bob Schiller a little bit, you know, the behavioral economist, Nobel Prize winner. And I went around with him uh, on because of a project we were, we were working on. And, uh, and, at, and at one point, I was on vacation with my family um, at, at Beaches Resort or something, you know, an all-inclusive resort. And I was, I was talking to Bob, and I was lamenting the fact that, you know, I, this, the all-you-can-eat buffet is just really, really terrible. And I know that, that, you know, because of the economics that I've had, you know, I know that I shouldn't, I shouldn't keep eating, you know, after, it, after eating provides me negative marginal utility. <laughs> But, you know, at some point, you just, you're just stuffing yourself and it just doesn't feel good anymore. And yet, a lot of times you'll keep eating. Um, and that's totally irrational. Um, and uh, so I was lamenting to Bob that I, I just thought I was a, you know, I mean, despite the fact that I know that I'm not supposed to do that, I still do that. And, and he sort of sheepishly admitted that he does that too, which makes me feel good. I mean, he wasn't a Nobel Prize winner at the time, but he was, you know, he's clearly the smartest economist I've ever known. And, um, and so it made me feel a little bit better, but, um, but we all, we all act as we all act on the basis of these forces, even when we know that, that we shouldn't be uh, acting in certain ways, things push us a certain direction. But, um, anyway, so that's the sort of the first level that the second level are people who took some economics and took away a few basic concepts that they don't really understand, but they, but they think they do because they, they got an A in the class, right? So the basics of supply and demand. Higher prices make people demand less of something. Uh, lower prices and they want more of something. Um, and, and it's amazing to me, by the way, that, that how many people get that concept. Higher prices and I want less, lower prices and I want more, but sort of forget the whole supplier side 
that higher prices make me want to sell more to you and, and produce more, and lower prices want, make me want to produce less and sell less. Um, and and so, but but here's what confuses people. So there's another concept here relating price and quantity. Um, when prices are high, it means people want a lot of something. Okay? And so, wait a minute. I thought higher prices mean people want less. All right? So we have this concept that says that if, if you're offered a higher price than a lower price, then you want less of something. But we also know that when you observe a higher price, it means people want a whole bunch. So that seems inconsistent. And, and, and it's not inconsistent. It's just a confusion between the price as the input to de- building the demand curve, which is, you know, higher prices make me want less of something, and price as output in the price system that explains the supply and demand balance. That is, people want a lot, therefore prices are high. So, so I mean, that sounds sort of subtle, but it's, it, it, it's actually a source of a lot of sort of misunderstandings as, as you go on further. People think they understand, but, but they don't. And they confuse that simple concept, very simple concept, and it gets confused uh, very easily. Next level up, um, and people have had more economics, and they understand that price caps either have no effect because the cap is above le- the equilibrium price, or more normally, a price cap is instituted um, and it creates shortages because at that price, the buyers want more and the sellers don't want to sell as much. And so there's a shortage. Um, and the people who sort of understand that, and again, that's Econ 101, um, they, they, get, they get really confused by something else. And that is a shortage that has nothing to do with an artificial price cap. Uh, I talked about this, and, and I, this, is, this never really was all that important until uh, COVID, uh, I wrote a blog two years ago, and there's a link in the notes called Shortages Are Unmeasured Inflation, explaining how the supply constraints were leading to shortages and, and, and talking about that issue. But the common prediction at the time was that when the supply chain issues eased, then prices would fall back down. But that is absolutely the opposite of what economics actually tells you. Economics tells you that a shortage means the price should be higher. And it would be if price had fully adjusted, except that what had happened in COVID was the price shocks, the, the supply shocks were, were so dramatic and so quick, so, so rapid. Um, and the demand shocks, by the way, were so immediate and so rapid that the clearing price would have been much, much higher. It didn't adjust in the real world that quickly, and so there were shortages. But what that tell, told you was not oh, as soon as the suppliers get their act together, then we'll just keep quoting that same price and eventually people will have, uh, the shortage will be fulfilled. No, that's not what happens. What happens is, is that, that that shortage is telling you the actual market clearing price is higher. And so as some more supply comes on the market, you know, supply and demand will meet at a higher price um, unless somehow, and by the way, abstracting from the fact that with all the money, the actual demand had increased as well, Unless suppliers end up supplying lots more than they had prior to the disruption, prices will end up being higher um, and not lower. And so that, that was, you know, the, the clear prediction from economics is that if you remove a binding cap, then prices go higher and more goods are exchanged. Um, 
but but you have to sort of understand that a shortage caused by the sudden restriction of supply is happening because the price system doesn't instantaneously adjust. And so the shortage is a substitute for the price increase that would be happening if prices did instantaneously adjust. Anyway, like I said, I wrote a, a blog article about that, pretty short one actually, just sort of but showing you the supply and demand curves, what's actually happening. And it was important at the time because the notion of transitory inflation rested largely on that misunderstanding of the economics. And it was a misunderstanding not by, you know, school children, but by policymakers and PhDs who didn't understand that fundamental fact about economics. Maybe it wasn't Econ 101, but it was 201. It wasn't terribly complex stuff, but it was it was doing more than just remembering what the curves looked like but understanding why the curves are that way and what's the actual mechanism, what's the actual behavioral thing we're trying to capture that's happening behind that. And, and oh, by the way, in the real world where prices don't instantaneously adjust, what, how do we have to adjust our understanding of those models? And, and the problem with all of these things is that price and quantity are, are actually intertwined. They're simultaneously determined. People tend to think, uh, partly because this is sort of how we're taught about the supply and demand curves, people tend to think about products being put out on the counter with a price attached to them, and the consumer simply decides whether to buy them or not, and that's how you come up with the demand curve. But, but the, the price system is not a sequential process like that. It's a, it's a simultaneous process, and that makes it fundamentally difficult, more difficult than the simple curves, to understand what's really happening. So why am I talking about this? Well, this is a real world issue because, you know, the Fed doesn't understand it either. <laughs> and they, and they I mean, I'm sure that, I mean, there are, there are what, 5,000 economists at the Fed. And I'm sure there are a few of them that do understand it, um, but maybe can't articulate it to all the, all the ones who have, you know, bigger PhDs and don't understand it. Um, but the Fed keeps working on affecting quantity. Right. So the, you know, the whole notion that if we raise interest rates high enough, then enough people will be thrown out of work and that will cause prices to come down. Um, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. Raising interest rates to lower prices. Um, and, and we're forgetting about the quantity of money here. We're just talking about interest rates and, and, and inflation. Raising interest rates to lower inflation would only make sense if raising interest rates only affected demand and not supply. But I'm not sure why higher interest rates would necessarily even affect demand in most cases. It's more clear how it would, might move the supply curve by making it more expensive to produce. Producers typically are, are levered, um, and, uh, and they have inventory, which costs, uh, costs interest to carry and... And, um, you, know, you know, working the cost of working capital is an important input. And so, it, so it's really easy to sort of see how you would affect suppliers. And it's a little less clear to see how it affects, you know, the, the consumer side of things. Um, but anyway, the, but the real answer is that it's indeterminate on, indeterminate on price. Um, and there's, there's sort of evidence that raising interest rates does not do anything important to inflation. And I have a blog on that link in the notes uh, called Enough with Interest Rates Already, where I kind of go and I just show you the the evidence that if 
you know, when the Fed raised interest rates or lowered interest rates, you know, given this change in interest rates, what subsequently happened to inflation? And the answer is nothing. I mean, there's there's very very little evidence that raising interest rates has anything to do with inflation. But I've I've complained about that enough on these podcasts. I don't need to do that anymore. But but raising interest rates where it's not indeterminate is on quantity. There's no question that when you raise interest rates, you'll move either the supply curve to the left or the demand curve to the left or both. And and in, in any of those cases, the quantity, which in the case of of the Fed and the economy, we're talking about you know, you know output, GDP, there's no question that that results in less output. It's just – so interest rates – Interest rate hikes clearly affect economic growth, but it's not at all clear what happens to price. Case in point, I've talked about this before, housing. Higher interest rates have a big effect on housing volumes, what transacts in in the uh, the home buying market. Um, But it does not have a big effect on housing prices. Uh, Home prices rose in the 1970s despite rocketing mortgage rates. Recent rate hikes have seen existing home sales fall to about a 4 million annual rate of sales, which is the lowest since the global financial crisis housing bubble burst. Pre-COVID, we were at about 5.5 million sales. So we fall, fell from 5.5 million down to 4. That's a, that's a big drop in sales. And so naturally, people say, well, since sales are at the lowest since the, 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 the home bubble burst back in uh, 2007, 8, 9. Well, we obviously should see a similar price response. Uh, no, we haven't seen that. And part of the reason is that the supply of homes, the situation, the circumstance of the, the fundamental balance of supply and demand is totally, totally different. Um, so... Um, Nationally, home prices have fallen about um, 2% or so before turning back higher recently. So um, it's a decline in real terms in home prices, but it's not killing anybody. It's not, it is certainly nothing vaguely similar to the global financial crisis. And so naturally, everybody just keeps thinking it's still ahead. It really confounds a lot of people. Um, the Case-Shiller Home Price Futures, um, and, and full disclosure, we, we use that in some of our strategies. Um, we don't not not taking a view, but but as a as a hedge. But the Case-Shiller Home Price Futures are are back to pricing in a steep decline, another four and a half percent fall in nominal home prices from the current level by the end of next year. Uh, so that's like a seven or eight percent real decline in prices, which is which is huge, given that there's a massive shortage of homes out there for sale. And the people who are selling the contract at that price think that that makes sense because, after all, the home sales market is in terrible shape. I mean, there's just you know realtors are really really suffering out there. Um, but again, that misses mixes up the price effect and the quantity effect. The quantity effect is real. Higher interest rates are clearly pushing down home sales. Um, but there's very little reason to think that higher interest rates should drastically affect home prices. Yes, it makes homes more expensive for the buyer at any given home price. So it's a shift of the demand curve to the left. 
But since higher interest rates benefit the homeowner that already has a fixed mortgage, they serve to reduce available supply since selling at the same home price as before is less attractive. So that shifts the the supply curve to the left. So the interest rate effect on home prices is indeterminate. Both supply and demand shift to the left, except that there's still the fact that the overall price level is rising thanks to an increased quantity of money. And so all else being equal, you should expect home prices to rise at least what CPI does. And so if they're rising a little bit less, then that means there's the, the, the sellers are, are uh, uh, you know, the buyers are getting slightly better deals. And if, if home prices are rising more than inflation, then the sellers are getting slightly better deals. But, um, but, uh, but simply the interest rate rise is indeterminate on, on home prices. Um, by the way, you could also look at the interest rate effect as being a movement along the demand and supply curves. This is, this is inside, this, if you're not an economist or if you don't dabble in economics, you won't care about this next part. But, 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 you, but you could think about the interest rate as being a movement along the demand and supply curves because the same home price is actually more expensive for the buyer. So you, maybe the supply and demand curves are in terms of the, the payments or something. Um, and the same home price is less beneficial for the seller, which leaves an indeterminate gap since the buyer and seller are using different lenses and, and they're actually dealing in the housing market, um, in both the housing market and the financing market at the same time. So it's, you know, there's this, they're actually on different uh, planes of the supply and demand curve. Um, this doesn't happen in autos because the auto seller doesn't have a 30-year note. So the increase in rates mostly affects demand and not supply and leads to lower quantity and lower prices. But in homes, it's a very, very different situation. Anyway, um, I digress, as I tend to. As a matter of fact, you could argue that this entire podcast uh, each week is just a, one long digression. But the point is that price and quantity, shortages and in price, interest rates and in quantity and price, they're all intertwined. And they're intertwined in, in pretty complex ways. And because people can't internalize complex models... They simplify these complex models so that they can explain them. Obviously, raising interest rates will lower inflation. Why? Because it affects demand. But what about the effect on supply? Uh, er, beep, beep, does not compute. That's too complex. Too many moving, moving parts. I don't know. Um, and that's the answer, in fact. I don't know. As with so many complex models, the answer is hard to tell. Anyway, we do know the economy is slowing. Uh, despite the amazing third quarter GDP, there are lots of other signs that, you know, I mean, quarter to quarter GDP, uh, don't get terribly excited about. But, um, but there are lots of other signs that things are gradually slowing. And it would be really remarkable if you had 500 basis points of tightening and you did not eventually get slowing. Uh, that says that the supply and demand curves didn't move at all. Um, and so we didn't decrease the quantity. We didn't uh, decrease the equilibrium GDP at all. So that would be really, really bizarre. Um, but we will eventually get that slowing. It is a quantity effect. And there's no immediately obvious reason that those rate hikes will reduce inflation. Again, this adds quite, quite apart 
from the balance sheet reduction, which I mentioned earlier, which which is totally different and probably will reduce inflation if it goes on long enough. But that's a separate question from from the rate hikes themselves. So rate hikes affect the quantity of houses uh, being exchanged, but not necessarily their price. It, it should slow the economy, put people out of work, should not necessarily affect inflation. Um, and, um, and the reason that we think it does boils down to a lack of understanding of, of actually some very simple models, but what they actually mean when those models are translated from supply and demand curves to what happens in the real world and the simultaneity of the solutions of those curves of the way that they develop dynamically over time. Simultaneity, but boy, I can't even pronounce that word a second time. Anyway, back to the top. Uh, the question, our trivia question today was, according to Alabama, the musical group Alabama, what do you need to have in the band if you're going to play in Texas? If you're going to play in Texas, you got to have a fiddle in the band. That lead guitar is hot, but not for Louisiana man. So raw's enough that both are faded love and let's all dance. If you're going to play in Texas, you got to have a fiddle in the band. Ah, Alabama, with if you're going to play in Texas. That's all for today's podcast. Please like, subscribe, refer others. Contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. And by the way, I know I, I do have some emails uh, out there that I need to reply to uh, in a podcast format. Uh, subscribe for free to the blog, inflationguy.blog. And visit Enduring Investments if you have an inflation challenge. Most of all, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.